That's the, to alleviate everyone's anxiety. They said that today I'm actually maybe by uh, Augustine. Nobody's really sure. But uh, the other one is, O splendor of God's glory bright. Page 474. I love the words to that hymn. And he wrote those. Ambrose did. Have, have we ever done those hymns, Jan? Oh, yes. Have we, have we sung those in church before? Are you asking Jerry? Um, no, I'm asking you. We've done the Advent hymn. I don't know if we've done this other one. I played it. Um, I don't know where. Maybe the choir sung it or something. I bet Carol knows it. You'll have to well, ask. Maybe her. we have. Yeah. It actually comes, it's sung with various tunes, but the tune that they use in the Presbyterian. We should sing it maybe uh, after Easter. Right. Oh, splendor of God's glory bright. That would be good sometimes, for today. Sometimes the beauty of the lyrics had to do with the strength of the translator. Yeah. Also being a poet. <laughs> yeah, there's some variations on these hymns. Yeah, that's true. Just like the variations on the book. It's so readable, this, this translation has been so readable and enjoyable. Good, good. I think so too. We, you know, we have a poet, a good writer who's doing the translating. Yeah. Oh, don't shut that off. We need it. We we'll give another minute or two for others to join us. So how are things up in San Luis Obispo, Jerry? Well, very good. Um, Matt and Seda live in a Tascadero, so it was 88 today. Um, and it was 80-something yesterday. It's going to be very nice tomorrow again. So um, Matt, Matt works. You know, Seda's gone. Matt works. He's gone early. So I take Silas to school. They both get up on their own. Uh, Silas gets himself ready. I drive him to middle school. And Amos and I will stop by the store and pick something up for the day. Come home. We play with trains. We get down on the floor. Grandpa doesn't get back up from the floor very well, but he, Actually, he doesn't get down all that well either. And uh, we just see trains two inches from our eyes. And whatever it is we're imagining, that's what we imagine. Then we go to the park on our scooter. No, no, And then uh, um, at the playground, we work on sharing. Grandpa explained sharing at lunch about how we were sharing everything together, he and I, for lunch. Then we went to the playground and one of the kids had a little, little tiny train, and, and Amos is obsessive about trains and just grabbed it and said, share. So mm -hmm. apparently I was not perfect in my description of all of the attitudes of sharing. So we had to work on that this afternoon. <laughs> How's the potty training going, Jerry? Uh, much better with Lois than with Grandpa. <laughs> That's what she was afraid of. One of, one of us is a lot more patient. <laughs> One of us thinks, you know, right within reach is a diaper. Does he really, does he really have to learn this this week? Uh, Lois, uh, Lois is more of a homebody. So she's here in every half hour checking. Um, Amos and I get in the car and we go. We hit the beach. We, we're going to go to Avila Barn and feed animals tomorrow down in Avila Beach. And so I get permission to uh, use diapers when we're on the road.
So there, so you don't have to explain it to me. I'm just so, saying. So there, so therefore, we go on the road a lot. <laughs> That's the cause and effect. Well, you can see me and you can hear me well. We're doing okay? Yes. I'm actually in a comfy chair. <laughs> Let me begin with a prayer. Lord God, again, we are grateful for this day. For all your saints. Um, for giving us hearts that are more than just curious, want to know, so that we may live life more fully and help others to do the same, and that we may know you more fully. So we give you thanks for this opportunity and for each other's company and uh, for the testimony of the saints. Amen. I have a joke that worked on my uh, uh, middle school grandson. So I'm hoping it works on you. Are you ready? Okay. About saints. Two brothers were terrible. They terrorized the town they grew up in from their youth through their adult years. They were violent. They were scoundrels. Nothing good to say about them. One of them dies. The remaining brother goes to the pastor and says, I want a memorial service for my brother in the church. And I want you to say, he was a saint. I want you to say those exact words. He was a saint. I just can't say he was a saint. He was a bum. You were a bum. We all know that. I'm just not going to. I just can't do that. And uh, sorry for the loss of your brother, but I can't do that. It happens. Just listen, if that doesn't happen, there's going to be uh, a threat and violence against you and the church. It says, you know what? We're people of integrity. It says, well, okay, Pastor, if you do do it, there's going to be a lot of money for the church. Oh, I think I can work out something. Memorial service is scheduled. Pastor is given the eulogy and says the man who died was no good. No redeeming qualities. Violent, vicious, uh, hateful. Um, I can't think of anything good to say about him. Nothing at all. But compared to his brother here, he was a saint. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Let me see if I can share a screen here for a second with you. Should I take our sound off? You see that up? <laughs> yes. And can you read it? Yes. Yep. Wanna, um, we can stop and read any part that you want to, but I thought we would uh, start reading at... Uh, Chapter 17, the long story that dominates the second half about the dying of Monica. But at the end of book eight, he has converted. And he starts off, so will his writing change? Will his attitude change? Will his grammar change? This is not about a man being in throes of decision. This is a man who's maybe relieved of having made the decision. Um, how does it go? So he starts book nine with how delectably it all happened. All of a sudden, all those inane delectations 
weren't there any longer. All, all those desires. Um, and he mentions uh, ambition. doesn't mention about the sex drive. He mentions ambition, all those wanting to be recognized and wanting to strive to be ahead. Um, they, just, they just went away. So I decided to gently withdraw my tongue's servants. I love that phrase. Remember, he's a rhetorician. I'm, I'm tired of speaking on behalf of others. Um, so he's made the decision, like, immediately. This is within days. But to immediately quit, to leave his position for the holidays, there were holidays coming up within a month, would have been seen as self-serving and distracted from the conversion. That is, if I just got up and quit, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have brought honor to you, God, he says. It would have been misinterpreted as um, me just wanting my own thing. And it would have distracted from what I hope is some good effect of the announcement of my conversion. I had chest problems. He was having a hard time speaking, being a rhetorician. He was having a hard time delivering speeches in public. Yet I continued for the 20 days until the holidays. Was that a sin, he says? He doesn't know. Was that a sin? But I kept going, like, I'm now in your service, not in the city of Milan service. Yet I kept going. Was that a bad judgment? Well, if so, you forgave it all in the holy waters. Um, and uh, Veracundus has let us say at Cassithia come. Um, uh, though he is yet unconverted, he's extended the stay of Augustine and his friends, Nebridius and Olypius and some others, and his son, Adiodatus. Later, he was rewarded, I love the phrase, with illness and then conversion. So uh, he got sick and he turned to you uh, before he died. That's a good thing. Nebridius also, now he's, 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 he's really breaking the chronology here, we think, converted later, maybe much later from Manichaeism. He committed to Christ. He became chaste. And then later he died, having converted his whole household. So his story ended well. I retired to the country house and wrote much. It was sweet to think, it is sweet to think of that time. That was a, that was a good time. Leave Justin alone with his friends and his books. Can't think of anything better. I read and sang the Psalms during this time. I wrote against, but I was pitying the Manichaeans, wishing they could see you and me. I wish I had more contact with them now. I wish they could see the change in me. And then he's reading Psalm 4. And it's a good thing to want to reread this. If you didn't the first time, get out Psalm 4 and see how the next three chapters kind of track his reading. Everything before now seems inane to me. I shudder to think of the end. Had I continued down that path, I wanted to tell others. So he's got this evangelistic um, desire from the very beginning. Let others see, to let others know, to talk to others. Now, remember, this is a guy who by, by profession is a persuader. Now that he is persuaded and confident of it, he wants to persuade others. I learned anger at my sin, the things I used to not be able to give up, I, I learned to hate him quickly. My good was you in me. That's the only thing that was going. And you started growing sweet to me. I did not know what to do during this time. 
especially for those still deaf and blind. I just, I just was frustrated by not being able to be persuasive to them. You healed me instantly of toothache. You had a toothache. Um, when others had prayed for me, I saw you at work in my life. Um, you can read a lot into that. I mean, a toothache is really, I mean, that, that makes the cut of a story you're going to tell. Although you can die of a toothache uh, in the ancient world. After vacation, I resigned to the, I resigned my position by resigning to the citizen. I wrote to Ambrose about this. He told me, I love this part. He told me to read Isaiah. That's, uh, you know, I was asking for advice. He told me to read Isaiah. I started, but it's really hard. Isaiah is really hard. So um, for those of you who have read the prophets and you think, gee, this is a tough read, you got Augustine to back you up on that one. Uh, we returned to Milan to be baptized. His best friend, Olypius, has converted. Remember, um, later that same day, well, I think it was, they decided that Eliodatus would be baptized, which is not the same thing as them announcing he too converted. Augustine's the dad, and this, he can just make this arrangement. Uh, while there was singing in the church, I wept. Singing was a kind of a new thing. And then he cites what he is telling us, very interesting, that singing became more prominent because of an event. It was used during the church sit-ins against the area, Justina, the regent empress. Remember, the emperor is... Um, I forgot now, Valentinian II, he's 13, 14 years old at this point. His mother's running the place. She's the regent empress. She's Arian. This is um, an alternate form of Christianity, which Jesus has not got. This was the primary contestant, most of the empire. In North Africa, it was Donatism, but Arianism was still, remember that Arianism was decided to be out of bounds at the Council of Nicaea in 323, and then reinforced at the Council of Constantinople in 384. Well, that's now. That's maybe the year before this year. This is probably something like 385. Uh, so she's the Arian, so she decides all the non-Arian churches are to be vacated. And they're to be given over to the Arians. Well, this would be you know, getting rid of Ambrose and others. Um, so the people had sit-ins. You're going to get us out of here. You're going to have to call the soldiers. That may or may not work out well for you. At this time, the bodies of two ancient martyrs were found. Um, we don't know before then that anybody thought that they were important. Um, but if you find their body, they become, they become important because then you have a you have a claim to be a holy place. Uh, miracles took place. She, in the end, was defeated uh, in her purposes. Um, and then, if you're willing, I think we start reading at 17. Um, whatever else Augustine does in his writing, he's not a writer of suspense. He begins this section by telling us. Uh, we were about ready to return to Africa when my mother died. Now let me tell the story. Okay, so let's take a look at 17.
You who inspire the harmonious sharing of a house, join to our company, Evodius, a young man from our hometown. He'd been enlisted as an imperial administrator at large. We met somebody else who had the same position. Kind of a military, political attache. But then we turned to you, but then turned to you before we did. He's already baptized, abandoned worldly campaigning, and equipped himself to serve in your army. You were now together with the intent of living together according to our holy resolve. Augustine's long-time desire and experience of being with his friends. He wants to retreat uh, with his friends and think through the thinking the kind of place that would be better use of us servitude to you. We were returning to as a group. Gary? Yes. Um, I think you're starting to cut in and out. I'm wondering if you're further away from your microphone. I think I am. Let me let me get rid of this. Let me see. Yeah, and it also would be helpful if, unless you're, the rest of us are speaking, that you mute your mic because any noise uh, comes through. Um, so if you just hit mute, that way we don't hear any of that extra. I'm not talking to Jerry. I'm talking to the rest of yeah, us. Yeah, I'm uh... Yeah, I see it's kind of set up for the microphone at the church. I'm afraid to mess with it, friends. So if you can hear me. Um, You're sounding good now, Jerry. Let me just get closer. That's what it takes to shimmy a big chair, by the way. That's what that was. I wasn't having a seizure. That, that could have been part of my input. I didn't realize I was on uh, unmute. So. Go ahead. All right. But when we were there on the way back to Africa, as a group, that's an important phrase, as a group, as a group of Can I say this? I don't know if I've said it a hundred times before, but you asked Augustine, how did you come up with those, all those ideas? I mean, I have 40 volumes, thick volumes of small print of the remainder of this work, the parts that survived, which is a significant part because he was well known and it was preserved, but not all of it. Where did he get all this? All of this? He says, I never came up with an idea on my own. It was a group of us. Yeah, maybe he's the brightest boy in the group. And he's the one responsible for writing it down and getting it out. And you know how it is. The secretary of the, the secretary who takes the minutes of the meeting, controls the meeting, um, decides what was decided, and, you know, the phrasing of everything. And this is all Augustine. But he thinks he did it in groups. Um, that's a, our graduate learning system is so individualistic. All the measurements are individual, never of a group output. And so our idea of scholarship is really a rugged individualism. Um, Augustine will have none of it. So we're going back to Africa as a group. But when we were staying in the port city of Ostia, Ostia is the port city of Rome. 
Rome's not actually on the water. Actually, Austria isn't on the water anymore. Um, after 2,000 years, it's been enough infill of the river that it's not on the border. When I went to um, uh, Jan and Bela, were you with me? When we went to Ephesus, and uh, you got to get on a bus and drive and drive about 20 miles to get to Ephesus from the port. Paul's day, the docks were in Ephesus. Um, just the filling of all the years. At the mouth of the Tiber River, my mother expired. I pass over a great deal of my account, as I am in a great hurry. Great hurry for what? Except my testimony and my expressions of thanks, my God, even though about countless things they remain silent. But I'm not going to pass over anything my soul gives birth to about her, your servant, who gave birth to me both in the flesh, into the light of this world in time. That's a phrase that's going to introduce book 10 about time. And in her heart, so that I could be born into eternal life. Book 10 and 11 through 13, if we decide to take it on, it's going to be about time versus eternity. I won't speak of her gifts, very important, but instead of your gifts to her. And she didn't make herself or bring herself up. Gifts would not be to her credit. Her gifts are to your credit. You created her, and neither her father nor her mother knew what she, coming from them, would be like. And she was trained in the fear of you by the disciplining switch of your Christ, the guidance of your only son, in a committed Christian household, a sound part of your church's body. Monica was raised a Christian. As for her moral instruction, she was accustomed edifyingly to praise. To a greater extent than her mother's care, the care of a certain broken-down old serving woman who had carried her father around as a baby in the way little ones are commonly carried on the backs of girls just a tad bigger than they themselves are. i got to confess that the vision of what he's talking about is more clear to me than who. You know, the, 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 the 12-year-old who carries the 8-year-old um, at the end of a long walk. Um, that's what he's describing, that this woman carried a broken down, a, a certain broken down old serving woman had carried her father around like a baby. He describing Monica with her father. He describing his grandmother with her husband, except the phrase here is father. It would still be Monica's father. So, you know, I would have said Monica, except I don't know that he's going to describe her as his broken down old serving woman while her father is still alive. Unless she was also providing care for her parents while she was raising him, Augustine. Uh, any of you read that and it was far more clear to you than it is to me? Who's who? I'm wondering, does serving mean serving God? Almost always, except in this context, it sounds like somebody who works in somebody else's household. Yeah, serving woman. Okay. I mean, he keeps calling his mother... He keeps calling himself the servant of your servant, the, the servant, the servant child of your servant. I mean, I'm a servant now, Jesus. I was born to one of your servants. I read this as more than her mother 
took care of her. There was a servant in the household that took care of her mother. Okay. Um, I'm okay. That's that's one of the possibilities. There was that was very common is that the the servant took spent a lot more time with the children than the parents actually did. I hope so, or my dissertation's worthless. Yes. Yeah, I love uh Courtney, you would know Quintilian says um to, to Roman elites, quit hiring Greeks as your nannies. Your kids all sound Greek. Which, which is absolutely true. If this is the person who actually gets the kid up in the morning and feeds them the lunch and the pedagogue's a Greek who walks the kid to school and is their adult companion during the course of the day to protect them and focus them and all that. Yeah, your kid's your kid's not going to have your speech patterns. And grateful remembrances. And because of her age and her outstandingly virtuous life, she was held in quite substantial respect by her owners in this Christian household. So I, I think I'm going to lean toward there was a serving woman in the household where Monica was raised. This was how she came actually to have charge of her owner's daughters, Monica being one, a charge she carried out conscientiously. When the need arose, she would control them with a fiercely God-fearing harshness. Uh, he approves of this. And uh, by the way, my kids did not, but Augustine does. And in teaching them, she showed a sober foresight except for those hours when they were nourished with extreme restraint at their parents' table, she wouldn't as much as let them drink water, even if they were desperately thirsty. All right, uh, welcome to the ancient world. This was her way of heading off a bad habit, and she gave this wholesome explanation too. Now you drink water as you have no access to wine, but when you've entered your husband's houses, and become owners of the storehouses and wine cellars, water will look like dirt to you. Yet the habit of guzzling is going to win out. So learn to drink with great moderation because someday you're going to have access to the wine cellars. And if you're a guzzler, this isn't going to work out for you. With this methodical way of teaching and with this authority for commanding, she reigned in the greed natural at that susceptible age and actually shaped the girl's thirst to a decent proportion so that they already wouldn't have liked to do what it wasn't proper to do. We have it. Yet, there did creep in, as your servant told me, her son. Yes, there did creep in a weakness for wine. This is Monica now we're speaking of. In the usual way for a soberly behaved girl, she was dispatched by her parents to dispense wine from the cask. After she lowered the cup down through the opening at the top, but before she poured the unmixed wine, almost all wine drunk, drunken, drank, uh, that was drinked in the ancient world, uh, was mixed uh, with water. Uh, but before she poured the unmixed wine into the bottle, she'd take a little sip with just the edge of her lips. She couldn't do more without recoiling in the taste. She didn't even like it, but she just liked to do it. Know anybody like that? Oh, that would be Augustine in the pears. Doesn't actually like pears. 
It wasn't any desire to get tipsy that made her, but only a degree of high spirits. Ordinarily, now he's talking about his mother here. He's gonna, he's gonna say this is because she was high spirited. He won't be that kind to himself in describing characters. I want, I wanted evil because it was evil. Ordinarily spurting out of bounds and overflowing in the young. Playful impulses that bubble over in childish minds that are usually repressed by the weightiness of older people. In any case, she added small portions day by day to that first small portion. Since the person who pays no attention to small matters gradually falls away and fell into the routine of greedily gulping down small but nearly full cups of undiluted wine. Where was the shrewd old woman then? With her fierce prohibition. Was anything going to win out over this lurking disease, Master, if your doctoring didn't keep watch over us? With her father and mother and other minders gone, you were present. You who created us, who call us, and who also do something good to save our souls through people put in charge of us. What did you do then, my God? How did you care for her? How did you heal her? Didn't you draw a hard, sharp, sharp insult out of another soul, like a surgical knife from among the things you provided for in secret, and with one stroke, slice off that festering flesh? A slave girl, with whom she used to go to the castle, was having a dispute with her young mistress in the ordinary way. And when they were all alone, hurled a name-calling accusation as a vicious taunt. You're a little lush. Struck to the heart, the other took a look at her own ugly behavior and instantly rejected and shed it. In parallel to flattering friends, bending us out of shame, enemies calling us to account generally straighten us out. But you pay them their due, not for the correction you achieve merely by their unwitting agency, but for the hurt they intend. In other words, God puts them in your life these people um, that hurt you uh, to benefit you, but they still have to answer to God for the hurt. That slave girl was angry and keen to send her young mistress into a rage, not to heal her. That's why she insulted her in secret, either because this just happened to be the time and the place for this dispute, or because she was afraid of her own liability, having waited so long to point out this wrongdoing. But you, Master, who governs beings in both heaven and earth, wrench into your uses the waters hurtling through the depths, so that the ages flow onward in an orderly turmoil, even from the sickness of one soul. On you've, you've on occasion been able to heal another. So let no one to whom this becomes apparent give credit to his own power if a word of his straightens out someone you wanted to straighten out. That is. Those of you who actually do it for the sake of the other person, don't think too highly of yourself. God can use enemies to do this kind of thing. Raised in this chaste and sober way, made submissive to her parents by you rather than to you by her parents. When she reached the ripe age for marriage and was turned over to a man, interesting phrases, she served him as her master and took a whole lot of trouble with him for you, right? 
He spoke to him of you through her behavior, by which you made her beautiful and an object of reverent love and admiration to him. Accordingly, she endured the insults of her husband's infidelities and never quarreled with him over that situation. She simply awaited your mercy for him and belief in you would render him chaste. In addition to his infidelities, he could be as exceptionally hot-tempered as he was kind at other times. She knew not to stand up to her husband, not physically, of course, but also not even verbally when he was angry. At a point when she saw that his mood had changed and he was calm and approachable, she would then give him an account of what she'd done that happened that he'd become worked up without adequate deliberation. The upshot was a great contrast. Many other married ladies whose husbands were gentler carried around the marks of blows, which did discredit to their faces. In conversation among friends, they would make cases against their husband's conduct, but she would make one against their mouthiness. By way of a joke, she would give them serious advice to the effect that from the moment they had heard what's called the marriage contract read, they should have classed it as a bill of sale by which they became slaves. Hence, they should keep in mind their place in life in which it was wrong to act instantly, insolently toward their owners. They knew that she bore with a ferocious spouse, and they were amazed that there was had never been a word about Patricius beating his wife or any other evidence to show he'd done so, or that the two of them had ever fallen out in a domestic squabble for even a single day. When an intimate conversation, they asked why this was. She explained her established method, which I've described above. Those who listened to her and tried, those who listened to her and tried it, commended her. Those who didn't listen, ground down and tormented. Okay, a um, personal privilege here. I love Augustine. This is not Jerry Andrews' advice on marital um, bliss. Okay, I love the boy. Um, at some point, you don't, you don't, you have to forgive him for this, you know, um, but I think he's saying, he's, he, he, he's, you know, he's, he's writing a eulogy about his mother here, that her kindness saved her in marriages, which were all harsh, and it won over her, his father in the end. Um, I can be without the phrases that she wouldn't stand up to him as verbal abuse, but I don't know, it's not up to me to come up with everybody's strategy. If, if, if you've been struggling with Augustine and you just want to say something bad about the boy, now might be the good now might be a good time. Feel free to. I think what I find mildly disturbing about this passage is just this kind of underlying um, understanding that if her husband became angry, it was her fault. You know, like if he became angry, she would wait till he was calm and then she would explain, oh, well, this is why you became angry. So it's kind of this idea that a woman who is beaten is asked to be beaten. And yeah. I think that's a disturbing aspect of it, but it's in no way um, 
not appropriate to the time in which it existed. So, yeah. just, you know, I, 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 I thought he almost saved himself with the sentence. Then she would give him an account of what she'd done if it happened that he'd become workout without adequate deliberation. But what's behind it, what's underneath it is, but he would otherwise have a right to. Exactly. Yes. If she had, yeah. if she had done wrong. Yeah. Um, Uh, let me put progressive revelation is a is a doctrine that says that later parts of the Bible do no more than earlier parts that God is revealing himself. So we would expect, you know, we've got kids in the third grade in our Sunday school who know more about God than Abraham. Abraham doesn't know anything about Jesus. Okay. They just know more. There's also the sense of the progression of the faith that think of the Bible itself, not as the full-blown tree, but as the seed. Um, if you want to read one, the, uh, my opinion, the best, or at least most effective for me, is uh, John Henry Newman's, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, anyway, he takes the idea that faith is an acorn. The church is the tree. And it, yeah, sometimes it takes some discernment to see if the tree is really with integrity connected to the acorn and it's rooted in the same thing as the scriptures. It's rooted in the scriptures and all that. But don't expect what you read in the Bible and the first generation of Christians to have it all. And all we got to do is remember what they knew. There's an expectation that we would grow in knowledge. Of course, that can explain every every new thing that's bad too, you know, that can be a justification, but um, this, this idea of what, uh, uh, where it gets contested the most is on slavery. Why did Paul write to Onesimus, a slave and say, represent yourself to your master. Where um, on, on a couple of other that we, we would think of as now we think of as a controversial issue about abortion and about um, child abandonment. It appears that from the very beginning, the Christians saw through that one. That there was no three centuries later, they figured out, gee, there's no such thing as an unwanted child. Every child bears the image of God. They didn't come to that conclusion three centuries later. They seem to be doing that from day one. How long did it take for them to get to an anti-slavery stance? Um, by the time Constantine comes around, um, early 300s, um, it's, it's being challenged. You know, Aristotle famously, famously said, this is unjust, it's wrong. And it's just the way the world is. Nothing, nothing to do about it. That's, it's about the only word, word before Christianity that you can get that critiques slavery. So when we think about marriage, interpersonal relationships, and family life, um, are we going to hold a guy who lives in the year 400 or being as whatever it is we think we are in life? Um, 
for not being as enlightened. Um, having said this, let me say this on behalf of the boy. There's no defense of his father in here. Um, he, he says on three or four occasions in the confessions, my father behaved badly until he came to know you. And he came to know you very, very late. So there's no defense of this. There is simply an acknowledgement of it and no critique of it. That's what's bothersome. You know, just give me a, and my dad used to do this when he was wrong. Just, just give me, just give me one of those. And he doesn't quite do it. Why? Well, uh, I, I just see this as they're living in, he's having to live in this culture that's very non-Christian culture. And um, she's, uh, she, she quoted in here the verse of your behavior is going to convert people, um, which is what, the, what Monica was doing. And her behavior ultimately converted her husband. And I see Christianity as bringing to light and helping to educate even, even the secular world that these were bad behaviors. But back then, it was this very small piece of the world that understood that even though the culture was this way, this was not the way to behave. But they had to exist within that culture at that time. Right, right. Yeah, we need to be aware that Christ Christianity is now not only legal, Augustine lives long enough to see people joining his church that he's not sure should because there's an advantage in being a Christian. That's not the same thing as it has become a Christian society. These are still classical virtues are being promoted, not Christian virtues. And um, there, 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 there is an Augustine, well, and some others. I mean, we have some of Ambrose writings, not many. Uh, some of the sermons are uh, the ones that Augustine liked. So they sound a lot like each other sometimes. Um, this sense of kindness wins the day. In the area of marriage, in an unconverted spouse, Paul pretty much had already said it. If you find yourself unequally yoked, I don't think we have any doubts that what he meant by that was, you're the Christian, but your spouse is not. If you find yourself unequally yoked, you do not have permission to break the yoke. As if your marriage isn't legitimate. It is legitimate. And who knows, he says, but by your behavior. You know, what does he think? Your arrogant, um, violent behavior? You might win your spouse over. Of course he means something like this. Yeah. Also... Monica, he he's talking about Monica and her life here. He's yeah. not trying to do a, a, a commentary on the current culture. He's just saying this is how it was. This is how she handled it. And this is what happened in her life. That's true. That's perfectly true. Disappointingly true. I want him to answer every question all the time, no matter what he's talking about. Um, yeah, I'll tell you a conversion in me. When I was younger, maybe this is typical, 
we're, I was an idealist the way that many are, and that is ideas are the most important things. We won the day because our ideas, our Augustines were smarter than their Plotinuses were. We won the day because we had the better set of ideas. It's, it's always good to go into debate and actually be right. That, that's a little bit of a help. And we were just better at it. Our theologians were better than their philosophers. I don't think that's how we want it at this point. It appears that way because we don't have many, many stories like this one. We have the writings of men, mostly, who argued with each other. And frankly, their writings, the pagan writings, are preserved mostly by the Christians. So we only have a smaller part of whatever it is that they were offering in the defense of paganism. And it is weaker by comparison. I think everybody would say that, but it's also been selected out. But I now think we won the day by behavior. Well, we have God on our side tell, teaching us and telling us what to do and giving us the power, and they did not. Yeah, yeah, it helps to have, yes. Did I forget to say it helps to have God on your side? Uh, <laughs> this also is a help. I think we won the day by behavior. When the plague came to the city, everybody who had any means at all, any wealth at all, would get out of the city. The Christians went in. The pagans say this. Christians went into the city. You don't think in the long run that's not going to win the day? You're, you're going to have well, to. That's what happens with current catastrophes. Is it's the faith faith based groups who actually are the most effective in solving the, the situation? I don't know for certain, but I don't know any atheist organization that organized a field hospital in Ukraine. That's a pretty self-serving statement from my point of view, but uh, um, I think it's probably true. Um, yeah, yeah. How did how did you all become Christians? Because somebody won an argument, you lost it, and you became a Christian. Um, he thinks. I mean, he's you know, Augustine talks about all this as an intellectual conversion, and then in the end, you say, "It's my mother who gave her my spiritual life." He doesn't appear to have any intellectual arguments with him. Just Told him he was completely wrong and prayed for him to be right someday. Let me continue reading. 20. Her mother-in-law was, yeah. Um, just a quick comment. So, you know, when you started reading these passages, you know, you just start, at least I do, you start to kind of, kind of cringe. And it just doesn't sound something that we should even, you know, that they should even be describing or whatever. But here's, here's the, here's the point that I think is, a little bit uh, scary. A lot of people will read this, even though he's just kind of describing a situation, and well, will then kind of say, "Well, because of this, I'm going to just dismiss Augustine." Um, this this idea with cancel culture. I mean, we can make we don't have to do it now, but we can make this conversation a lot more interesting when we want to talk about Christians that came out and actually supported slavery. I mean, there were a lot of so-called devout Christians on the Confederate side during the Civil War. Um, but this idea that when somebody's living in a certain culture um, and might have some ideas that would go, you know, totally alien to what we would think of today in 2022, 
that they should have those same beliefs that they're not necessarily growing or, uh, you know, moving in their, their beliefs that everything they ever did in their life needs to be canceled, needs to be not looked at and it needs to not be studied, I think is a dangerous thing. Yeah. Let me go on. 20. Her mother-in-law was at first provoked against her by the whispers of ill, evil-minded female slaves. But my mother got the better of her through sheer subservience, holding out with fortitude and gentleness. I think one of the things I, I want to say we learn um, kind of the opposite of the cringing is he provides no further explanation as if on first reading we would all understand this. Yes, female slaves gossip and they turn this person against that person. Uh, yeah, well, true. We all gossip. Uh, gossip is the art, the evil of turning one person's heart against another by what you say. That's the definition of gossip. In the end, the mother-in-law on her own turned these servants into her son as mischievously chattering go-betweens who had upset the domestic peace between her and her daughter-in-law, and she demanded that there be punishment. Well, okay, friends, this is one of the most frightening sentences. You could go down the streets, maybe not of Thagasti, it was a small town, but of Carthage, and there'd be a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, a torturer, because the physical exhaustion that would come from torturing one of your slaves to get the truth out of them was so great, you could take your slave to a professional, drop him off, have the torturer uh, record the confession, and pick him up later that day. Um, we don't know if this was a growing industry and we're talking about hundreds of thousands or because two or three ancients mentioned this, it was exceptional, but it was there. Once he'd heard this, he yielded to his mother's wishes, cultivated good order in his household. This is Patricius, uh, Augustine's father. and provided for harmony in his family. He disciplined with a whipping the slaves who had been brought to his attention as troublemakers the whipping being the choice of the woman who brought them there. He, she vouched that any one of them should in the future expect the same reward at her own hands for saying anything bad about her daughter-in-law with a view to keeping in good with herself. None of them dared any longer, and they all lived in exemplary mutual goodwill and affability. Okay, that may be a little overstatement there. Little, uh, the, the glasses are a little rosy-tinted there. After that, everybody was loving. Yeah, you, you threatened me with a professional torture. I might be nicer too, but you granted also to your good shadow in whose womb you, my God, my mercy created me, this considerable gift. Between souls and disagreement and discord, she offered herself whenever she could as an outstanding peacemaker. Though she'd heard many extremely bitter statements from either party about the other, the sort of thing that the bloated back up of an unassimilated dissension tends to send wretching up 
with acid conflabs, let undigested resentments of an enemy who's not there belch out at a friend who is. That's good writing, friends. That's just he, he, he's, having a, he's having a good time when he writes that sentence. She never revealed across the divide anything she'd heard except what had the power to reconcile. That's the opposite of gossip. No, they don't think bad of you. No, they're not saying bad things. I got nothing to report about that they think bad of you. Now, let's get on with the reconciliation. This talent she was given might seem to me to be a small matter if I didn't unhappily no countless hordes suffered from some ghastly plague spreading into incredibly wide prevalence who not only divulged statements of enraged enemies to enraged enemies but even add statements that weren't made yeah he's a bishop this is what he does all morning now he stands trial for people who are just mad at one another claims of justice personal injustice and offense and this is what he's got to do. And, and, and the languages are exaggerated. People call each other names. This is what he does for a living while he's writing the confessions. I'm sorry, unhappily, I know hordes of people who do this. My mom did it differently. In contrast, in the eyes of a humane human being, the absolute minimum obligation would be not to stir up other people's views and not to make them worse by bad-mouthing. That is, if he doesn't actually put effort into calming them by speaking soothingly. My mother was the kind of person to do that. And her lessons were from you, her teacher at the core of her being, in the school of her heart. Remember, he is not going to talk about her gifts. He's going to talk about the gifts God gave her. He gave her this gift. Okay. Lastly, it's a, it's, it's a nice literary device. So that he's not just bragging on his mom. That could get old quick. Um, but this is Augustinian theology. It all comes from God's grace. You got nothing going for you. Except God. Lastly. He even won for you her husband. At the end of his life on earth. And now that he was committed to you. She didn't beat her breast over the infidelities. She put up with when he wasn't yet committed. She behaved like an actual slave of your other slaves, meaning a Christian among Christians. Whoever among them knew her praised and loved and honored you by praising much that was in her, because he could sense your presence in her heart according to the testimony of her blameless conduct. She had been the wife of only one husband her whole life. She had done her duty by her parents in return for her upbringing. She had run her house devotedly, and she had given witness by good works. She had tended to her sons, suffering birth pangs, so to speak. Again, every time she saw them leave the true faith path and move away from you. Last of all, and by your gift, Master, you allow me to speak. She cared for all your slaves, meaning other Christians, who, before she went to sleep in you, had attained the favor of your baptism and lived in unity because of you. She cared for us as if she'd given birth to us all. And she served us as if she'd been born from all of us. Then the day on which she was to leave this life was moving. The day you knew about, but we didn't. It happened. Because I'm convinced you arranged for it through your mysterious means. That she and I were standing alone together in a house where we were staying. 
leaning on the sill of a window that looked out to the garden. This is, remember, this is the writer who, in the last book for the first time on three occasions, told us he couldn't remember it all exactly right. He's got this one down at. They were leaning on the sill of a window, looking out to the garden. This was an Ostia on the Tiber River, and we had withdrawn from the crowds after the hardships of a long land journey from Milan down to Ostia, and were resting up for our voyage back to Carthage in North Africa. Therefore, we conversed together alone, very gently, forgetting the past as we stretched out to what was before us, we sought in the presence of truth in person, which is you. You've heard a great preacher say, that would be me. We're the people who believe truth is a person. That reshapes how we think about everything. It's still reshaping me. What the eternal life to come would be like for the holy ones, the life that neither the eye has seen nor the ear heard, nor has entered into the human heart. But with that mind's mouth, we panted for the streams of your spring on high, the spring of life, which is where you are. We wanted as far as we could sustain them to have a few drops of that water splattered on us so we could contemplate such a mighty thing. One of the things that Augustine does best, in my mind, is his acknowledging the hunger of the heart and the soul. He's going to describe this here, that this desire for the next life. We tend to poo-poo it, you know, too heavenly-minded, no earthly good. That was my dad's phrase. Uh, I was not to become such a person. Um, that it's all pie in the sky, by and by, that kind of thing. But, but Augustine is not going to be ashamed to acknowledge a desire that hasn't been satisfied. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great phrase that if you find yourself desirous of something and not satisfied, then take it that your heart knows the truth. There's something that you haven't experienced yet. And he's talking about the divine. Um, let me give you maybe maybe my my favorite Augustine quote. It takes a little while to set it up. The, uh, the Pelagians. He was just accusing, uh, these are the people, you do enough good works, and you can do what you got to do. You just try harder, just try harder, just try harder. Um, you, you can be the perfect, you can be a perfect Christian. They were promising it. You just tried harder. And he said, you can try all you want to. You're not going to get there. Um, I know. And uh, we all have more than just faults. We're sinners. We need grace. And in the end, it was there's no room for grace in your system. And so Pelagianism became a heresy. Uh, Augustine defined that single-handedly as a heresy. And having said that, he accused them of being Stoics. Uh, if you just, you know, you live your life um, the way a Stoic would want you to, with these virtues, avoiding those vices, then you've led the perfect life. He says, you've completely ignored the desire of the hearts, desire for good things, great things, the desire of the heart for God, and its foolishness in trying to satisfy it with lesser things. Um, you're not going to get this perfect life. You don't have a perfect heart. This is all in his commentary on uh, John chapter 6. And then, he, then he says this about these Pelagians. He, he calls them cold. 
that they're that they're um, they don't know passion. He says, "Give me a man who stands in the wilderness and longs for the spring that flow by the home of his youth. Give me a man who has been in love, and he will know what I'm talking about." Give me a man who has known hunger, and he will know what I'm talking about. But a cold man, he will never understand. One of the things that endears Augustine to me as a person is his willingness to acknowledge that love, desire, runs the heart. And the heart runs the person. And that God is that desire, that hunger, that thirst that we have. Um, but we don't know that. And we try to be satisfied with lesser things. And the person who has the best chance, if you will, is the person who knows that their desires are not being fulfilled. Following the faith is not an easy thing where it just all kind of works out. And it's just all satisfying from here on out. It's not. It's just it's a lot of hard work. Now the hard work begins. But it is prompted by grace. Um, that now we know we're seeking God. So he and his mother are looking out the window. They're talking about the things to come. They're not going to talk about the past. Our conversation was brought clear to the conclusion that any degree of delight in the physical senses, under however much material light, didn't seem worthy of comparison or even of mention in relation to the bliss of that eternal life. Stretching upward with a more fiery emotion toward that thing itself, we walked around step by step, all material objects and even the sky from which the sun and the moon and stars shine over the earth. So they got those things. And we still climbed up inwardly as we thought of and spoke of and wondered at your works. We came into our own minds and climbed up behind them. Now we're talking about things that are in the mud to reach the land of the abundance that never fails, where you graze Israel forever on the fodder that is truth. So all these things. So sun and moon and stars are the basics. Then you move on from there. In that place is found the life that is wisdom, through which all these things around us are made both these that were and those that will be. Wisdom itself is not made, but is what it has always been, and it will always be that. In actual fact, there is no was or will be in it, but only being, no past, no future, only now, since it is eternal. To have been and to be about to be are not eternal. While we were speaking and panting for it with a thrust that required all the heart strength, we brushed against it slightly. We almost understood it. We almost grasped it. Well, again, I'm going to give you a question here in a few minutes. Chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 are about that. The narrative is done. No more great stories. Um, it's just thinking about time and eternity and God's creation. 
Then we sighed and left behind us, adhering up there the first fruits of the Spirit, and made our way back down to the racket of our mouths, where a word was both a beginning and an ending. Now, what in that is like your word, which is our master, remaining forever in himself without growing old, making all things new? So we said, suppose a person were to experience that the uproar of the body becomes silent, and the illusions of the land and water and air become silent. And the whole extent of the sky is silent, and his very soul is silent to itself, and passes beyond itself by not thinking of itself, and dreams and revelations full of images are silent, they're not good enough either, along with every kind of language and signal, and suppose that a person were to experience the absolute silence of whatever comes into being through passing away. If anyone hears, all these things do say, we did not make ourselves but rather the one who remains into eternity made us. But suppose that once they've said this, they fall silent. They've married, made the ear prick up toward him who made them, but he himself alone speaks, though not through them, but through himself, so that we hear his word. Can you hear a baby crying right now? That's Amos. Um, his father is attending to her. That's the sound of a bath, in case you wanted to know. Um, I know that sound. I heard that sound 40 years ago from his mother. Not through the body's tongue or through the voice of an angel or through the thundering cloud or riddling analogy, but instead we hear himself, whom we love in the form of these things, but we hear him without these things, just as right now we're stretching forward and with thought reaching the eternal wisdom that remains above all things. Okay. There's not going to be many paragraphs. I'm just giving you a warning, friends. I'm just uh, uh, books 10 through 13. There's not going to be many paragraphs. You're not going to have to read twice. Suppose, like this, the one I just read. Suppose this were to be prolonged, and other visions of a far lesser kind were to be taken away, and this single vision would ravish and draw in and hide in its inward joys the one who sees it, so that life without him would be like this moment of understanding was. To get some some eternity right now, which we've sighed. Isn't that what's described by enter into the joy of master? And when this will happen, and when will this happen? It is when we all rise again, but we will not all be changed. I said things like this, well, not in that kind of style or in those exact words. But you, Master, do know that on that day, when we were saying things like this, and when this material world, with all its delights, was looking tawdry to us as we talked, she then said, my son, as far as I'm concerned, nothing in this life, life delights me. What I should do after this and why I'm here, I have no idea. After this, meaning after its conversion. My hopes for this earthly existence are reduced to nothing. There was one thing for the sake of which I wanted to remain somewhat longer in this life, and that was to see you, a universal Christian, before I died. My God has fulfilled this wish, fulfilling it to overflowing as I actually see that you're his slave, <clears throat> scorning earthly happiness. So what am I doing here? Remember later on, 
Um, he's going to tell us she's 54. All right, this is not 94. Like, why am I still here? Or 104. This is 54. I don't have a clear memory of my answer to her. In any case, it was barely five days later, or it couldn't have been much more than that, that she took to her bed with a fever. Some days into her illness, she had a blackout and for a short while lost any awareness of her surroundings. We rushed to her. But soon she regained consciousness, and I looked at my brother and me, never gives us his name, looked at my brother and me as we stood by her bed, and she said in a confused manner, where was I? Next, as, stunned with grief, we gazed at her, she said, you're burying your mother here. I was silent, controlled my crime. My brother, in contrast, said something about hoping she would not pass away in a foreign country, but in her own native one, as this would be happier for her. When she heard this, her face became strained, and she scolded him with her eyes for that level of thinking. Then she turned her gaze to me and said, just listen to what he's saying. Soon afterwards, she said to both of us, bury this body anywhere you like. Don't be troubled and perturbed about it. All that I'm asking of you is to remember me at the altar of the master, wherever you are. And she'd made this statement clear to us. The words she could manage, she fell silent and was tormented by her intensifying illness. Unseen. Unseen God, as I thought about your gifts, which you plant in the hearts of your faithful followers, and from which marvelous harvests come forth. I was thrilled and gave thanks to you. I recalled what I knew about the considerable anxiety that had continually agitated her about the tomb she provided and prepared for herself next to her husband's corpse. She had gone to considerable trouble to make a nice place next to her husband's burial place. They had a very harmonious home together, and so... I love that phrase. They had a very harmonious home together. Just want to let you know. That's the description of what I just heard three, three uh, chapters earlier. They had a, and so, since the human mind can't fully take in heavenly things, she wanted this also to be added to that happiness and remembered among humankind that after her sojourn across the seas, it had been granted that mingled earth would cover over the earthly matter of both married partners' bodies. I didn't know at what point this frivolity began. He thinks this whole thing is frivolous. So does Monica now. Through the abundance of your goodness to disappear from her heart. But I rejoiced, amazed at the change revealed in the way I've just described. However, in our conversation at the window, when she said, what am I doing here now? It didn't in fact appear she longed to die. It, did, it didn't in fact appear she longed to die in her native country. So I also heard afterward that one day after we arrived in Austria, she was taking in motherly confidence with certain friends of mine. And I wasn't there about disdain for the world and the blessing of death. They were astounded at the woman's manly fortitude. Uh, fortitude is a, is a manly virtue in the classical world, which you gave her. And asked whether she didn't dread leaving her body behind so far away from her own commonwealth. And she said, nothing is far from that. There's no reason to fear that when the world ends, you won't know the place for which to resurrect me. Remarkably rational. Um, but if I, uh, I think I promised a hundred times to bury my mother next to my father, and I see her the next time, that somehow will be slipped into the conversation. I'll have to respond, yes, mother, I haven't forgotten. 
It's just, it's just going to happen, right? On the eighth day of her illness, when she was 55 years old, remember we count that as 54, and I was 32, that reverent and devoted soul was set free of its body. I closed her eyes, and into my heart there flowed together an immense sorrowfulness, which seeped through into tears. At the same time, on a forceful command from my mind, my eyes choked back the spring that was gushing out of me, to the point that it dried up. The fight this required put me in a really awful state. The boy just won't cry in public about this. Because, because, as you read further, um, he thinks that's bad form. He thinks that's grieving like people who don't have hope. Uh, that's Paul's phrase in Thessalonians. Don't grieve like those who have no hope. Well then, um, great. I believe the Bible. So then how do we grieve? People who have hope. That's not the same thing as saying, don't grieve. What, she was nothing to you? That's, we're supposed to pretend that? There's no loss for us in this? This is... You can call it consolable or you can call it inconsolable loss. I'm, I'm okay with both. It's irreplaceable loss. But then at the moment when she breathed her last, the boy, Eddie Odadis, shouted in grief. My 13-year-old son, just started weeping and wailing, was hushed by all of this, became quiet. In parallel, something childish, even in me, which was slipping into weeping, was hushed by a youthful voice in my heart and held its peace. We didn't think that these funeral observances shouldn't clear tearful lamentations and groans. This is the common customary way, way to bewail some wretched state people are in when they die, or suggest that they've been annihilated in every sense, like if there's no future, then uh, you can weep this way. She, however, died neither wretchedly, wasn't, circumstances were not bad, nor completely. In other words, she's not, she's not dead. Her body is. We held this to be a fact by deducing it confidently from the proofs her conduct offered and from her faith that was no counterfeit. So the pagans do this. We won't do this. Well, the, there's a difference between grieving because they're in this uh, annihilated state or this they're wretched and so on. and for me, the grief is for myself because I've lost you. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know what more needs to be said, Carly. Jesus went to Lazarus' grave and wept. Yeah. Like it's, Jesus not, it's not because something's wrong with you because you died. It's be, because I've, I have a loss in my own life. Right. Right. It's not like Jesus didn't understand the resurrection. Um, so, yes. So, to make it clear, friends. Should I die while I'm your pastor? There is to be weeping and wailing, and you're to do this inconsolably and at long length. And you're supposed to say things like he was, he he is irreplaceable. And how will we live without him? And you're supposed to say all these things. It'd be really helpful if one of you would stand up and say he was a saint. Um, and tell the joke if you want to. Compared to your sister, you mean? <laughs> you know, actually, my sister, my sister's going to be there and offer a rebuttal. I have a secret friend that after my three kids speak at my memorial service, 
he's going to stand up and offer a rebuttal. He's going to say things like, no, Jerry did not say that. No, Jerry did not do that. Jerry was not that way. His three children remember him incorrectly. I've got this all planned out. So what caused me such severe inward pain unless it was the fresh wound from the sudden tearing asunder of our close day-by-day relationship? A very pleasant and loving one. I was, in fact, gratified at her avowals, at the actual crisis of her illness. She had sweet things to say to me while I waited on her. She called me a dutiful son with a burst of fond feeling. Recall that from my youth, she'd never heard a hard, insulting expression launched at her. And yet, my God who made me, how could the respect I paid her possibly be compared with her servitude to me? Because I was abandoned by such a tremendous solace, my soul had a deep wound, and my life was as good as dismembered, as her life and mine had become. Um, you can go all the way back and say that's Plato, about two, two people, one, and then they're separated. That's how we become individuals. But it's also Cicero's, um, Hortensius, his definition of friendship, that the two become one. And uh, when, remember when he lost his friend in his youth and was inconsolable, and so had to move and go to Carthage, um, he talked about his half had been taken from him. Again, you, you can't, you know, grief is, you, the moderns didn't, it, didn't invent love and they didn't invent human connections and affections. But it's difficult to get an ancient to say things like that. Uh, Augustine will talk about when he was 20 years old, his best friend died and he thought he'd been cut in half. And remember that passage. And he would go to all the old places. And his friend wouldn't be there. And the old places couldn't tell him, oh, don't worry, he'll show up. He's just a little late. But had to tell him he's never going to come. And it just, it was such a torture, you just had to leave. Augustine didn't invent love. But he does a very good job. You know, we're now in our ninth book of him talking about his his inner life. So that itself is a gift. When, I, when we prevented the boy from weeping anymore, Vodia snatched up a book containing the songs and began to sing one of them, and the whole household sang it back to him. I will sing to you of your mercy and judgment, Master. When they heard what was going on, many brothers and devout women gathered, while those whose duty this was prepared the body in the customary way I, in a part of the house where I could properly do this, discoursed suitably on the occasion with people who I didn't think I should, who didn't think I should be left alone. People came to me and were worried about me. And with this solve of truth, I softened the torment that you knew about. Couldn't, I was I just going to burst out, and I couldn't do it without any people around. They didn't know about it, and though they listened closely to me, they thought I wasn't experiencing any pain. For your ears, in a place where none of them could hear me. I scolded myself for the weakness of my emotional state and restrained the onrush of my sorrow. For a little while, it submitted to me. And then it carried forward on its own violent momentum again, not to the point where I burst into tears or even where my expression changed. But 
I was aware of what I held down in my heart. I was cleanly displeased that these things, humankind experiences, had so much power over me, experience that have to happen according to the new order of things and the lot assigned to us. I felt the sting of a second kind of suffering and was afflicted with a double sadness. Well, I don't know, Augustine, give yourself a break, eh? Mom died. Um, you don't want to cry in front of 100 people. You don't want to cry in front of your 10 best friends. Then go in your own room and cry. Yeah? So now when the corpse was carried out, we went with it, and we returned without tears. At the tomb itself, when her body was set down before lowered in, as this was customary in that locale, meaning that's not how you do it in North Africa, we poured out prayers to you as we offered on her behalf, sacrifice. The price of body and blood paid for us, that is, they had communion there. But even during those prayers, I didn't cry. No, that whole day, I mourned intensely, but secretly. And in mental turmoil, I ask you, to the extent I could manage to ask, to heal my grief. You wouldn't. And I think it was because you were committing to my memory by the single piece of evidence, if nothing else, the chain that every established relationship constitutes, even on a mind that's no longer feeding on false discourse. Ah, well, now he's being critical of being so critical of himself. You were teaching me that relationships don't. I couldn't contain my, or put it back, I was exhausting myself containing my emotions. But my emotions kept coming. I decided to go to bed. So I'm going to do something. You go to the bath. Because I'd heard of the bathhouse God's name in Latin. Because the Greeks named it for its power to cast grief out of the mind. So uh, I don't know if he actually got that right or not. So true father of bereaved children. Here I am. Testifying to your mercy about this. All right. I bathed. And I was exactly the same as before I bathed. The bitterness of sorrow hadn't been sweated out of my heart. Didn't work. But then I slept and woke up and found my suffering in substantial me measure relief. Alone in my bed there, I remembered Ambrose lines, which don't lie. You are God, the maker of all things, ruler of the skies, who clothes the day in lovely light, the night in welcome sleep. The rest can ease the body and send it back to useful work and relieve exhausted minds and free from mourning the distress. Then gradually, I recovered my previous, by the way, this is the most authentic lines of Ambrose that we have. Later on in the Middle Ages, people found ancient or hymns that were 100, 200, 300 years old, didn't know what to do with them, knew that reading the Confessions, that Ambrose was a poet and began to ascribe all, every piece of poetry they found to him. So there's a lot of stuff out there that says Ambrose, that isn't Ambrose, but these are the most authentic ones. Augustine heard it from him. Then gradually I recovered my previous sense of your slave and her devout life in you and her in godly ways, sweet and indulgent behavior toward us, which I was abruptly deprived of. I felt like crying as a sight about her and for her, about myself and for herself. I let go of the tears. I started thinking about her. Stop thinking about what I look like in front of other people. I let the tears I'd held in, letting them run out as freely as they wanted, 
and out of them I did offer my heart, rested on those tears, since there only you could hear, not any human being who could put some contemptuous meaning on my will. But now, Master, I testify to you in writing. Whoever wants can read it. Let him put whatever meaning he wants on it. If he finds it a sin that I wept for my mother for just a fraction of an hour, mother who for the time being was dead in my eyes, but who'd spent many years crying for me to live in your eyes, then he shouldn't laugh at me, but rather, if he has ample love, he should weep for my sins, because in the presence of you, the father of all of his brothers, of the cross. For my part, though, now that my heart is healed of that wound, which provided plenty of evidence to convict me of emotions with a mere physical basis, I pour out to you, our God, tears of a much different kind for your servant. They flow from a spirit assaulted by assessing the perils in every soul that dies in Adam. Now he's weeping for the unsaved. My mother was given life in Christ even before her release from her body, and she lived in such a way that her faith and her conduct still give rise to praise in her name. Notwithstanding all that, I wouldn't dare to say that from the time when she was born again through your baptism, no word against your commands came out of her mouth. But it was said by your son, who is the truth, if anyone says to his brother, you fool, you will be liable for punishment by hell's fire. In other words, she didn't do anything um, that would suggest um, she was liable for punishment by hell's fire. So you think you know where he's going with this, but watch what he does here. This is what makes Augustine a theologian. Woe to even an exemplary human life if you conduct its trial in the absence of your mercy. She wouldn't make it based on her good works, and she never acted against you. Because, in fact, you don't inquire aggressively into wrongdoings. We faithfully hope for some kind of place in your home. But if anyone recites to you a list of his genuine good deeds, what he's giving you is not a list of your good But if anyone recites to you a list of his good deeds, what's he giving you? if not a list of your good gifts to him. If only human beings could recognize themselves as human beings, and if, and if only the person who boasts would boast of the master. God of my heart, whom I praise and whom I live, hear me, setting aside for a little while her goodness, in which I give joyful thanks to you, I now entreat you to forgive my mother's sins. Hear me, I ask in the name of our wounds cure, hung on a piece of wood, and intercedes for us as he sits at your right hand. I know my mother busied herself with works of mercy, and that from her heart she forgave her debtors and their debts. You too forgive, you too forgive her debts. If she incurred any more in all those years after the cleansing water of her salvation. Forgive them, Master, forgive them, I beg you, and don't put her on trial. May your mercy triumph over judgment, since your words are true, and you promised mercy to the merciful. Mercy is what you granted them. The chance to be, it's you who will have mercy on whom you will have mercy and will be tenderhearted you're, to whomever you're tenderhearted. I believe you already did what I asked. That it, now, he, he's doing something very Roman Catholic here. He's asking us to pray for his mother. Okay? But I believe you already did what I asked. Sanction these real offerings for my mind. As the day on which she would be released loomed close, she didn't contemplate having her corpse expensively clothed or preserved with perfumes. She didn't covet a choice monument 
or care about a two in her homeland. She didn't give us any instructions of that kind, but merely asked that we remember her at your altar. She asked that we remember. And she served there without missing a single day. And she knew that your sacrificial victim, Christ, was shared from there, the victim who erased the record of the debt we owed. That sacrifice triumphed over the enemy who counted up our wrongdoings and looked for whatever he could charge us with, but he found nothing in the one through whom we won out as Christ, who will pour his blameless blood black back into him. In other words, he poured out his blood for us. We can't repay him. We can't put his blood back into him. That's a strange thing, but it works, I think. Who will pay him back the price for which he brought, bought us and takes us away from him? The right of that price paid for us. Her slave bound her soul with a chain of faith. She believed Christ died for her and her blood with us. Yep. No one could tear her away from your sheltering care. Either the lion or the dragon could get in her way, not by confronting her with force and not by ambushing. She won't plead that she owes nothing. That way she would lose the case and be turned over to the wily plaintiff. She's not claiming innocence. Instead, she would plead that her debts were paid by the one nobody can pay back. He wasn't the debtor, so he settled our debts. Okay, now the boy sounds like a Protestant. So let her grace, let her peace be with her husband, before whom and after whom she was married to no man. She slaved for him, bestowing a harvest on you through her endurance, so that she acquired for him, him for you as an additional profit. And breathe your spirit, my master, my God. Breathe it into your slaves, my brothers, your sons, my masters, those whom I serve with my heart and my voice and my writing, so that all of them who read my account remember at your altar your servant Monica, along with Patricius, who was at one time her husband. Through their bodies they brought me into this life. How, I don't know. Let them remember with dutiful fondness those who were my parents in this passing life. Let them remember my brothers under you, our father and our mother at the universal church. Let them remember my fellow citizens in the everlasting Jerusalem, which your people and their sojourn here on earth sigh from the time they go out until they return. Thus, through my testimonies here, more richly than through my prayers alone, what she asks of me at the end will be granted to her. Form of many people. Um, that's good stuff. You mean to tell you that? That's good stuff. B.B. Uh, Warfield uh, was uh, a theologian at Princeton Seminary in the mid-1800s. And uh, he made a phrase that I think most people have accepted as importantly true. Augustine invented the Middle Ages. Um, by that, such things as this, prayer for the saints. Not to the saints. Can't get Augustine to say that. Prayer for the saints after they died. And Augustine invented the Reformation. That's why if Protestants had saints, he's our saint. He's a Roman Catholic saint. He's one of the few that we'd be glad to share together. Um, he did both of those things. But he invented the Middle Ages by being so, by writing so many things and being so persuasive in writing what he writes. He did not invent praying for the saints. But from this point on, when somebody wants, somebody challenges a Protestant like me, like you're in Christ's care. I don't need to tell Jesus about this person anymore. Okay, it, it, it strikes us as irrational, and you, you can't get can't get it out of the Bible. But when somebody says, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah," but they're going to say, 
Have you read Augustine? His mother asked him to do this. He thinks it's the right thing to do. He didn't invent this, but he is he becomes the tradition. He's the one who passes on wherever it is he got it for however long it was there. Um, I mean, Paul has one phrase in Corinthians. The Corinthians, which it, the phrase is of praying for the dead. It's like, no, Paul, you don't believe that. I know you don't believe that because you're a good Protestant like me. But he said it. And we have no idea what he meant by it. But the Roman Catholics are pretty clear. They know what he meant by it. Actually, the Mormons have a pretty clear idea. So you go ahead and get baptized. And yeah. you got a great, this is why the, the ancestry thing for the Mormons, they can go back to forever because you're, you're doing proxy baptisms for all your ancestors who weren't baptized. That's going to count. That is, that's, 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 no, sorry. Jerry, yes. um, at, when, when she says, um, I don't know the words, I can't find it, but something about the altar, is she talking about having a mass for her? Or are they doing that for people that are past? Yeah, yeah, they're, 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 uh, every worship service we would call a mass. Uh, I mean, every worship service had communion. It wouldn't be a worship service without it. And that is the time at which you pray. This, uh, okay. this is not necessarily, I don't know that he doesn't have it in mind, but he's not arguing here for morning and evening prayers. He's arguing that when the congregation prays, they pray for him. And at this time in history, had the Catholic Church's Catholic Church got their idea of purgatory down yet or is that something to come no uh, purgatory is not in writing yet i don't think okay. all right i got a question for you friends i don't know if you had a chance to skim ahead um, we've got two options i would like to be done um for easter which means we have three more wednesdays um we can take on what route would be to continue going. Take book 10, which is the longest. Um, these books have been, in this translation, 30 pages. I think book 10 is 45 or something like that. Maybe maybe much more than that. Um, and it's a different kind of reading. Can't, I can't skip over the non-narrative parts because that'll be skipping over the whole book. So we'll be reading some of it. I'll try to be selective enough. I think I'm going to be able to send you some materials before we it might, like I've been doing with that, if I send that to you well beforehand, that might help your reading. So I would give a one-line summary of each piece of the chapters. Might be helpful. And that, if that's the case, then we've got two weeks to take on 11, 12, 13, which are also a bit longer. Um, and, you know, one and a half each of the two weeks. And we will have done it. The other way is to do book 10. Uh, the other way is to stop now our reading and to take two, three weeks and to talk about the rest of Augustine's life. The Confessions doesn't give us much opportunity for that. You know me, I can talk about anything no matter what it is I'm supposed to talk about. So we can still talk about that in and out. But the narrative ends here. And he's still in Ostia, buried his mother. Um, but uh, this guy has another 20, 30, 
30 years to go as a bishop. And if you want to go into that, I can give you the materials on that. And we'll continue to tell the story. Or a compromise is to try 10. See if it's satisfying. See if, yeah, you know, I, you know, I committed to reading the confessions and let's do it. Yeah, 10 is a little tougher, but there's still reward. It's not a rigor without, what's the phrase? It's not a rigor in excess of the value gate. And that gives us courage to take on the remainder. Or after we do 10 next week, if we decide that we've all begun to curse the day that we, we, were, we were born, that we learn to read, um, then we can decide to go back into Augustine's narrative. What would you like to do? Carol and I would vote for the compromise. Yeah, I like the compromise too. Okay. I mean, I got to see how bad it is. You've been talking about it so much, so I got to see exactly how tough it is. But. Yeah. But more, but I, but I'm also intrigued by you kind of filling in the rest of his life and some of the highlights. Yeah, in either case, I can send you materials um, that are all, I've already prepared that uh, for other context that just more than just a timeline, but it gives you an idea of what happens next to some of those challenges. That would, I mean, if we took that route, to me, part of the value would be to begin to understand Augustine's theologian. Yeah. What you're going to get. Um, you know, I, I, I take it back. Let Augustine be a philosopher. Augustine is taught by non-Christian people at non-Christian universities as a thinker. They don't mean by that a theologian, the doctor of grace, though they'll probably touch on that. The boy is a thinker. That's what we're going to get here in 10 through 13. If we didn't do that, it would give me a little bit more of a chance to talk about Augustine the theologian. Um, what took place in the city of God? Why is that? Consider, I don't know if city of God's read more often, but it's considered the more powerful work. And it kind of defines the history of Western civilization for believers and non-believers alike. So, um, but I, so far I've heard of, I'm glad to hear from others. My, my vote would be learning more about his life. I want to do the rest of this, but it's too much for me to read in the amount of time that we have left. So could we, you know, pick it up at a later time and go through the rest of it at a, at a slower pace? Because that's a lot to read before Easter. Um, yeah, we could, do I, it in, we could do it in heaven, Carla. We're going to have a that's lot. A thought. That's we're a gonna, thought. We're, we're going to have a lot of time, and I have no doubt we're going to be reading Augustine. Okay. Yeah, and I'm interested in the rest of his life too. So, but that's just my vote. I vote for, for the compromise. Uh, that that would be interesting. I'd like to know more because I'm reading books and and they always quote him, and I, I've read half of the City of God, and that was. That's just awesome, but uh, I'd like to know more uh, because he's influenced uh, Calvin and and all of us, really. So yeah, I'd like to know more about his theology. Well, I what's the definition of the compromise? I lost track. Yeah, the compromise is next week we do book ten, and then we would make a decision if it was a satisfying experience, 
wanted to continue in the same route, then we would take on 11, 12, and 13 over the next two weeks. If we decided then that um, thank you, but no thank you, we would like to take another route, then we make the decision to spend the last two weeks on his life and, and teaching. Sounds good. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, the next week it's 10. So let's see if by uh, the end of the day, Monday, um, I can get something out to you all that um, uh, helps you read through 10, but you're going to want to start before then. But I don't think I can get anything to you before then. <laughs> by the way, that Amos next door. Uh, and I read the confessions. It's referred to as uh, Magus S. Domine. Great are you, Lord. Those are the first words in the confession. And a lobe, I should show you this. A lobe translation has Latin on one side and English on the other. And it's two small volumes. And frankly, if it weren't bright red, this might not work. Um, but uh, I read the Latin. I read it so when you're, when you're one, you get book one. When you're two, you get book two. He turns three next week. So we are finishing book two right now. And who knows what's going to happen when he's 10. And we have to be 10. Um, my daughter my daughter is very excited about the fact that I'm reading all these heavily sexualized passages to him before there's any possibility he has any idea what I'm talking about. I was wondering what his comments were on the on the passages. He doesn't he doesn't get what's happening. He, he's he's not he's 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 not literate. We're we're okay with this boy, yeah. but he's not literate. And he he you know he'll say, "I want you to read this book to me." He pulled the book off the shelf today and said, "Let's read today," and you know it warms my heart. But he has not, it's not that he doesn't get the content on. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know it's two languages, and he, and he doesn't know that I'm reading words on a page. Lois, is very, Lois teaches literacy in our family, and she reads at length, the, just the books and books and books. Now, I don't like the books. Good Night Moon is not going to be read 2,000 years from now, but um, these are the books, and they pick it up. He hasn't quite picked it up yet. It's happening. He uses the word read, but it doesn't get Silas and I, we read the city of God, referred to as Glorio Isamam. That's the first word in Latin. Most glorious is the city of God. And we are now on book 12, our 22. And Latin. And he knows what's going on. What he hasn't quite figured out yet is his other grandfather's a preacher, too, by the way. Both his grandmother's teachers and both of his grandfathers are preachers. Is that this is not normative behavior between grandfathers and grandsons. Someday he's going to have a conversation with his friends. And they're going to say, your grandfather makes you do what? And then there's, then there's going to be a, a, what we call a come to Jesus meeting in our family. It's like, what did I do wrong, Grandpa, that I have to read City of God with you? So that hasn't happened yet. We're, in, we're 12 and we're in middle school and there's been no open rebellion. Enjoy it while you got it. I know. <laughs> Although when you see me stooped over one day, you'll know what happened. <laughs> All right. See you next week. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Jerry. Huh?